This is a Federal News Network podcast. Many new federal contractors came into the market as a result of the pandemic, and contract spending was on the rise anyhow. The latest analysis by the Project on Government Oversight shows that contractor misconduct is also occurring more frequently and with perhaps not enough oversight from buying agencies. For more, we turn to POGO's investigator, Neil Gordon. Neil, good to have you on. Thank you. Good morning. And you have been tracking spending as others have, and it has really undergone extraordinary growth, accelerated by the pandemic. Give us the uh, general landscape here. Right. Well, we looked at the uh, fiscal year 2020 top 100 federal contractors for our contractor misconduct database, which we update every year with the latest top 100. And we found some interesting patterns in spending. The COVID, the pandemic definitely had an effect. We saw a lot of new names in the top 100, companies that manufactured vaccines, companies that helped process pandemic aid, made the list for the first time. All right. And what about the occurrences of misconduct? And that takes many, many forms, contract fraud, criminal activity or misbehaving activity outside of the federal arena, but by that company. So tell us more about what you consider contractor misconduct for purposes of the database. Sure. Our, our database tracks all forms of misconduct, uh, any form of legal scrape, be it criminal, civil, administrative, local, federal, uh, international incidents. All right. And what's the trend there? How many incidents happen and how much money goes to companies that are involved in these types of incidents? Well, to pick out a few examples, Johnson & Johnson is a, is a new entry in the top list. And Johnson & Johnson has an extremely extensive uh, history of legal scrapes. Altogether, we found 37 instances of misconduct uh, since 1995 for which they've paid approximately $12 billion in penalties. They've had several, many cases of product liability involving their, you know, their products, their drugs, things like that. Uh, most recently, the opioid litigation has been a, a very big thing for them. They just recently struck a national settlement for, I think, $5 billion. Right. But that's a civil matter, and it has to do with the whole tort lobby issue. Every company gets caught up in torts. And sometimes it's easier to settle than fight them, regardless of who is really responsible for opioids. What about criminal activity or bribing, that kind of thing? Wouldn't that be something that's more indicative of whether a contractor is really a bad company? Sure, it could, um, depending on when it happened. If it happened long, a long time ago, uh, it might not matter as much to their reputation, um, especially if they made changes to the company uh, in response, you know, firing the people that were involved and reforming their culture, things like that. But no, we, we consider all instances of misconduct pretty much, you know, equal in terms of that, that company's track record of ethics and responsibility. And another company mentioned this year is the Dutch company, the electronics conglomerate Philips. They're, you know, in the top 100 of U.S. federal contractors, $906 million. What's the issue with them? Philips has had um, a 10 instances, uh, about a billion dollars in penalties for things like uh, antitrust. Uh, there was a big antitrust settlement involving CRTs, cathode ray tubes. So there was uh, price fixing allegations. They, they did have a False Claims Act also settlement for, I think, $35 million. Um, and they also had a criminal penalty for providing falsified testing data to the uh, the Pentagon and NASA. 
that was a $14 million instance. Um, so they've had a pretty varied background in terms of their misbehavior. We're speaking with Neil Gordon, an investigator with the Project on Government Oversight, and I wanted to ask you about one other company here, Fisher Sand and Gravel. This was noted in several reports by organizations as coming out of seemingly nowhere and growing into the top 100 with $2.5 billion in contracts. And Fisher Sand and Gravel doesn't sound like, you know, they're making airplanes or or high-tech gear of any sort. Right, no. See, the thing with the uh, the last year's ranking... Um, does include a lot of COVID contractors, but it also includes a couple of uh, uh, border wall construction contractors. And Fisher Sand and Gravel is probably one of the prominent ones. Uh, they, of course, were fairly uh, infamous for being one of the companies that President Trump plugged to the, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers to hire. And they have a pretty uh, checkered background too. Um, Several uh, violations, environmental law violations, for millions of dollars in, in fines over the years. And then in 2009, you report that the company and several executives had criminal sanctions for federal tax evasion. That's right, yeah. All right, but then also on the list, it's interesting, there are some companies without any history of misconduct. One of them is Moderna, which I think is a brand new company, relatively new company. It hasn't maybe had a chance to get into trouble, but tell us about some of those companies. Yeah. Um, Moderna, we didn't find any instances of misconduct. Out of the 12 new companies, actually, three of them didn't have any instances and one had only one instance. Um, so as we like to remind people every year when we make this, uh, our update to the database is that Misconduct shouldn't be considered a, a normal cost of doing business for a, a federal contractor because many of the companies in our database, and we have about 250 at this point, a lot of them don't have any instances or at least don't have a pattern of two or more, you know, in their background. So it, it shouldn't just be, you know, oh, well, they're a big company. They're going to, you know, make mistakes here and there. We show that that's not necessarily a true thing. A lot of companies that are regular federal contractors run afoul of statutes, especially the False Claims Act, which then results in fines if they are discovered to have mis made some sort of misstatement to the government. Often, it's an inadvertent thing. That is to say, no one intentionally did it, but nevertheless, it happens, and it is illegal. It shouldn't happen. That's not to excuse it, but it's not as if they are deliberate, malfeasant companies with people conspiring to do wrong. So I imagine a lot of the companies on the database have violated the False Claims Act, which can be complicated. I'm, not, again, not absolving the companies, but it's an easy thing to run afoul of. Well, I'm not really sure. It, it would pretty much be a case-by-case -case determination. I mean, some violations really are more intentional than others. So... And I think we, we've seen over the years some pretty egregious examples of contract fraud, overbilling, time card padding, things like that. All right. So what's to be done? The database is updated. There's some new companies thanks to COVID and the border wall that are on there. Some of them are misbehaving. Some are not. What should the government do with this list, do you think? Well, we started this database about 20 years ago because at that time, there really weren't any resources the government could, could use to check its vendors. Uh, now, since then, the, the government has uh, started a, a few databases that, that they can use to check that information. For example, the, uh, the FAPIS database, uh, SAM database, 
So luckily they do have these resources, although in some ways they're, they're limited in terms of the information. I think FAPIS only uh, requires uh, the company to uh, disclose uh, misconduct on a contract, whereas our database is more universal. It includes a, a, a broader spectrum of misconduct. So we, we hope the, the government knows about our database and, and you know, consults it. Uh, it's free. It's free to the public, and we update it constantly. Um, in fact, we just put in some new cases yesterday. The data uh, can be sorted and searched and downloaded and, you know, really analyzed. So we, we hope that contracting officers uh, will use it. And do you tie what you find on your database to, say, a list of debarments or suspensions? Does that ever tie together in some way? Well, when a company in our in our database gets suspended, debarred, we include that as an instance. Uh, we also include uh, source documents that, that can be downloaded. Neil Gordon is an investigator with the Project on Government Oversight. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his findings at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. And during his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual, actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, 
and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where what you can do to help them. Uh, I we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? 
Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.